Thank you, guys. Are we on? Yes. It's good uh, to be back in Cape Town. We were up in the how um, actually Limpopo region and uh, had a wonderful time with uh, John, who was giving everybody else a hard time. So. <laughs> No, it was good. He he was uh, asking a lot of questions, which was good. I really enjoyed the fellowship with him. Uh, do pray for him as uh, he tries to get legal in uh, South Africa. We do really want to support him and uh, future plans we will make known to you once his status is known to us. Um, what we intend to do, continue to support him. There's obviously need there as well since he can't work. So if you can continue to help him in that regard. Uh, the sayers are not here. Well, no, the sayers are here, but Don is not here. And I know that some of you are bringing clothes. If you could just hold off until um, I've spoken to Don, maybe we can take it to the, the, um, the safe houses uh, uh, by ourselves. Or I'm not sure how, how we can go ahead and do that. But keep it for now, and then we will we'll let you know how to go about it later. Um, before I get into the sermon, there's just a, a ministry opportunity for some of you. We, we um, want to provide some tracks to a uh, church up in, um, forget the area, Bintuk, no, no, Balcom, Balcom, yes, and a uh, small little community, and if you are in the writing track ministry, um, uh, we need to find, I know a person who could probably translate it, but if you, you, if you know somebody um, in this church that speaks Sutu or knows Sutu that can translate English into Sutu, please speak to us, uh, speak to me, and uh, uh, we want to translate some of our tracks into Sutu and send it up uh, to them. Um, I will reveal a little bit more, maybe a Bible study as to what the Lord is doing and uh, how that will impact us as a local assembly. This morning, we look at one more distinctive, and it will be on lordship salvation. I know some of you probably have no idea what lordship salvation is. That is okay. I will try to explain it as best as I can. Um, there's, I think, two more sermons, right, Peter? Uh, creation and um, evolution and then eschatology. What I've done is taken out uh, covenantalism and dispensationalism as a preaching uh, distinctive and made it into a teaching distinctive. And the reason is it's very difficult. I've tried to put it in a preaching format, but it's, it's better to be done in a lecture format. And so next week, instead of stewardship, I will be teaching on what covenantalism is, what dispensationalism is, and our distinctive regarding that aspect of theology. So if you do not normally come in the morning, I do encourage you to be here, or I will ask the guys who record to make sure it's either streamed or recorded so that we all are on the same page with regard to that distinctive. Unless anything changes, of course. The Lordship debate has been around for many years, and many Christians are not aware of what it is and why it is important. Many do not believe that it has any practical implication, and therefore it doesn't matter. 
let's just move on. It's another theological tangent that we do not need to show any interest in. However, there are at least two aspects that is crucial to this topic. There are more, but these are two of the most important ones. Does salvation only require faith? The question is not, does it require faith? The answer is yes, absolutely. Does it only require faith? For those in the Calvinistic camp, of which I am part of, would say, absolutely, do not add anything to faith. Please don't. And we don't. What then is the issue? Well, the second question is this. Is Jesus Lord at the point of salvation? Those are the primary points upon which this doctrine revolves. Like I said, I will mention the other tangents this morning, but those are the primary points. And it seems simple, right? Faith alone and lordship. It should be easy to sort out. Not that simple, though. A misunderstanding of this dark doctrine will reverberate throughout the Christian's life. It will affect how you live in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why it is important. On the opposite side of Lord's of Salvation are these two things. They are together, but I separate them for ease of explanation. Easy believism and free grace. Easy believism is a theological conviction that nothing else is necessary in salvation and post-salvation other than faith. So it is easy to believe. It is easy to come to saving faith, as its name suggests. Easy believism says that faith alone is needed to guarantee eternal life. And so, therefore, nothing else, nothing, absolutely nothing else is needed post-salvation or at salvation. While it sounds orthodox, what is meant by it is that faith alone means that faith needs no corresponding commitment, devotion, or fruits as proof of salvation. You don't need that, according to easy believism. All you need is to say you believe. Free grace, on the other hand, echoes that idea, but adds to it in this way. Everlasting life is free, hence free grace. Eternal security is solely based upon the promise of Christ. And so your faith in the promise of Christ equals eternal security. And that becomes nuanced later on, and you'll see it in a moment's time. Eternal security is swapped for eternal assurance. All people saved and unsaved are accountable for their works. Again, sounds orthodox, nothing Nothing to see here, right? Let's just move on. And we will agree to, to some degree with that outline. But these bare bones descriptions do not give the wide lens understanding of what is at stake. At the heart of this discussion is that Jesus is Savior before he may become Lord in both free grace and uh, easy believism. So Jesus is only Savior, which means he doesn't have to become Lord in your life. You get that, right? So that is the fundamental error. 
He does not have to be Lord in order for him to be Savior. We're not saying that. That is what uh, opponents of Lords of Salvation believes. In other words, if you want to become a believer, you do not need to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. I don't know about you, but that sounds wrong. Just at its core, if I don't want to submit to Jesus, what am I submitting to then? Paul says, for you were once slave to sins, but now you are slaves of what? Righteousness. You're still a slave. You have to submit to something or someone. They contend that if we believe that there is a submission that is required to Jesus as Lord, then we are advocating works-based salvation. And I would agree, if it's works-based, we should be concerned. In recent days, there has been a resurgence of anti-Lords of Salvation sentiment, not only the, in, in the blogosphere of the Christian world, you know, these um, very angry bloggers who uh, they attack anyone and, and everyone, not, not even McCarthy is immune to the attacks of the blogosphere. Uh, they are violently defending anti-Lords of Salvation. And in the process, call us who believe in laws of salvation heretics. Now, this, this, this teaching has been prominent in the mid-1990s. Um, what has become evident today is the effects of an anti-lordship salvation theology. For instance, a lady by the name of Amy Grant in an interview, on the topic of the LGBTQ community said, you know what, it doesn't matter what you believe. I have come to understand that God loves all kinds of people. It doesn't matter what you believe. I forget the guy's name. He's also from a music band that was prominent in the 90s. He came out and his daughter is... Trance, I believe, and has written a song in support of this community that God loves everybody. We need to be accepting to this philosophy because ultimately it's not what you believe, but who you believe. So if Jesus is not Lord, you can live any way you want. And that is what I mean by saying that anti-lordship salvation is evident in how people live. Today, easy believism has become so much more prominent. Why? Because it's easy to say, well, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I need nothing else in my life. Don't tell me to do anything. Don't expect me to commit. Don't ask me to give. Don't ask me to love the Lord or His people because that is not essential to saving faith. Just that faith, they say. You may be wondering, well, so, so what exactly is the problem? Number one, this is not my outline for the sermon, but number one is that there's a separation or the, a bifurcation of justification and sanctification. 
it's not seen, traditionally it has been seen as one, meaning justification naturally results in what? Sanctification. If you are justified, you will be sanctified. Now you will not be perfect in this life. We do not believe in the Kesvian or the holiness movement uh, where you are suddenly zapped into holiness. If that had to happen, it would be nice, but it does not. Zane Hodges argues, quote, The gospel is a free gift offered without condition or precondition to those who simply stretch out the empty hands of faith and receive it, end quote. A lot of people don't have a problem with that. But what he's saying is that all that is required in salvation, pre, post, doesn't matter. All that is required is to reach out the hand of faith. There you go. Take a leap of faith, man. So then, you exercise faith, your salvation is immediately secured. Just by you saying, I believe. So that's it. Even if that person later on ceases to believe what he first believed. So even if you turn around and say, you know what, I don't actually believe that Jesus is the only way. It's okay, as long as you sometime in the past believed. Your salvation, your profession immediately becomes assurance and security. See how dangerous it is? Salvation is only seen in its legal term and transaction, which in their mind cannot be undone. It's the, the, the judicial pronouncement extrinsic to us, external to us. And therefore, it doesn't affect the experience of the believer in post-salvation. It is just that declaration of being made right with God. And so therefore, you are permanently with God, regardless of what takes place after that. We will agree to the fact that it's a legal transaction and God justifies that person. At that moment, he declares him righteous, declares him right with God. But there's a net effect of that. There's a result of that which both easy believism and free grace do not believe in. Understand the weight of non-lords of salvation. They assert that you can be saved and never grow in holiness. You will never become like Jesus Christ in this world. You will never um, be more holy than what you are at the point of, of salvation. It doesn't matter if you are doesn't matter if you don't, because that's not important in salvation. This means fruit, repentance, righteousness is not a necessary outcome of saving faith. Are you tracking with me? Yes? No? Okay, so what this means then, if, if Jesus Christ is only Savior, then the net result of that is nothing. You don't have to live a holy life. You don't have to commit to Him. You don't even have to go to church. All you have to do is say, I believe, I have faith in him. Salvation alone. Bob Wilkin from Dallas Theological Seminary and founder of the Grace Theological, Theological Society says, quote, Free grace theology rejects that way of thinking responding to lordship, salvation. We deny that assurance is found inside of us in a subjective judgment of our works. You don't need works 
to prove that you are saved. Rather, the only condition of assurance is found outside of us by believing the promise. Hang on, but believing is internal, right? Anyway, by believing the promise that Jesus guarantees eternal life to all who simply believe in it. Simply put, assurance is of the essence of saving faith. Assurance, equal sign, saving faith. This means that whenever a person believes in Jesus, takes note, take note, not Jesus as Lord, just Jesus, he knows for sure he has everlasting life, end quote. I don't know about you, but it took me a long time to get to the, the stage where I was absolutely, fundamentally, clearly sure that I was saved. I believed, and for when I sinned, I started to question, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. But, but I'm, I made a profession. Why am I still sinning? Did, did you not struggle with that? They said, no, 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 no. The minute you come to saving faith, you have absolute assurance. I don't know. That, that's a special kind of holiness there. So assurance equals salvation. Is equal to, I should say, Salvation. And what I see here is a misunderstanding of assurance of salvation and security of salvation. Security is God's divine independent work. You are eternally saved if you are truly saved. Make sense? If you come to Christ for, uh, to be saved, God secures your salvation independent of what you do. Now you may have believers who are disobedient, but their salvation will be secure. Assurance may come later. Now, there may be some believers who knew at the moment of salvation, this is the Lord's work, I am saved forever. There may be some. But most people, where as life goes on and you see the cycles of your sanctification waver, you start to wonder, am I really saved? But assurance comes as God confirms His work in your life as He takes you through trials and says to you, you are mine because you cannot do anything of yourself. And so he provides the ability to persevere. Assurance is God's internal work. Yes, there's the internal work of security that we are permanently saved, but God provides our assurance. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Remember what they say, Salvation equals, immediately equals, assurance. Knowledge of eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. It is really dark, so I am probably going to struggle to read the text. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So pause there. I'm writing to you who are in the process, the ongoing process of believing in who Jesus Christ is. Why does he mention that? Because this church was not only struggling, but was impacted by a Gnostic uh, type, sorry, uh, theology that questions the deity of Jesus Christ. And so he says to you who believe who Jesus really is, I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life. That is a purpose statement. This is why I'm writing to you, so that you may know, in another word, so that you may have what? Assurance 
that you have eternal life. Does he have to write it to them if they already have assurance? No, they don't. He doesn't. This church was struggling. Are we true? Are we the true ones? Because there were some who left. And he says, no, in chapter 2, verse 19, they left because they weren't true. They weren't of us. But you have been, have the anointing of the Holy One. And, and it's not the anointing that most people think of. You know, the, that anointing. Um, it is actually the Holy Spirit. That's the anointing that he's speaking about. You have the Holy Spirit. And so you have the one who anoints. You have the anointing. Not something external to us, but something internal to us. John does not need to write about assurance of salvation if they have assurance because they are saved. This church was struggling because of a theological problem which was causing them to wonder, are we truly saved? And so he gives this book as a test of what true saving faith looks like. And he says, you pass these tests, guess what? You can have full assurance you are perfectly secure and eternally saved in Jesus Christ. It seems that lordship, non-lordship salvation proponents have crossed the lines between the objective reality of God providing security and the subjective reality of we becoming assured of our salvation. I hope that two points are clear. You can become assured later on. And some people will struggle with their assurance throughout, sometimes throughout their life, but the Lord is the one who provides assurance sometime during your sanctification. The claim is often made that Lordship salvation distorts the gospel. And if it does, believers, then we do have to be concerned. If, the, if Lords of Salvation adds to the gospel as they are claiming, then yes, we are teaching another gospel. That means I am misleading you and should be considered as a false teacher. You should be kicking me out and stoning me outside. Hopefully I'm not. <laughs> so let's look at this. What is Lords of Salvation? And why is this distinction so important? Our answer it by means of a series of questions. The first question is this. When we are saved, do we receive Jesus as Savior alone or Lord and Savior? Is the title Lord ever used in relationship to our salvation? Can Jesus therefore demand that you obey him as Lord? Does he have the right to demand anything from you if faith alone is required? Can we receive Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord? So those are the sub-questions I will be dealing with. There are ministries who insist on saying that you only need to receive Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. And if you receive him as Lord, you are adding to the gospel. Listen to Charles Ryrie in a book called The Balanced Christian Life. The chapter heading tells you what it's about. Must Jesus be Lord in order to be Savior? This book was written in 1969. I was given to it. I was given it in 1993, 93 or 94. This remained with me. And when I started looking into this, I, I, like, I know this book. Um, this sounds so familiar. And eventually I, I found it in my study. 
The importance, he says, quote, the importance of this cannot be understated. The question, must Jesus be Lord in order to be Savior? The message of faith only and the message of faith plus the commitment of life cannot both be the gospel. Therefore, one of them is a false gospel and comes under the curse of perverting the gospel or preaching another gospel, end quote. So, Lord of Salvation is another gospel. If you're saying, yes, you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you say, and Lord, false gospel. Anathema to you. This is about 20 years before John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus, that monumental work. According to Ryrie, and I encourage you to get it and read it. That is an important book to read. According to Riley and Hodge, which I will quote later on, Lord's observation demands more than the gospel actually demands. Though therefore, it is heresy. However, scripture overwhelmingly demonstrates that salvation is connected with Jesus as Lord. Acts chapter 2, verse 21. There are so many passages. I chose this for a specific reason because it's the first sermon preached in the church age. The first message at the inception of the church emphasized the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go through the entire sermon. I'm going to emphasize the last part of it. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass... That everyone who calls upon the name of what? Jesus. No. The Lord shall be what? Saved. Salvation and lordship in the same sentence in the first sermon when the church began. But why Lord? In fact, he mentions it previously in this sermon as well. This is a quote from Joel chapter 2. And I want you to pay attention because... Going to the Old Testament and explaining Old Testament prophecy connecting it to the New Testament can sometimes be confusing. So go to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, we will look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass that after this, or afterward... Um, not in a sense of chronology, but at a point in time, it's actually just later is the word. So after this or later, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit in there. Interesting. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it's in, jo- in, in Acts chapter 2. I remember this way Acts 2, 20, Joel 2, 20. That's how I make a connection. John 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16. You should try to do that. Daniel 2, 20 as well. Anyway, you get the point. Part of the promise that God makes here in the context of I will pour my spirit, is that I'm going to judge you. What? Well, go to chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, 
For the day of Yahweh is near, is coming, uh, and it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness, there is a spread upon um, the mountains. A great and powerful people, their like has never been seen, has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. What is he talking about? Judgment is coming. There's going to arise a people that will cause great calamity. Verse 10, the earth quakes before them and the heaven trembles. The sun and the moon are darkened and, and the stars withdraw their shining. Yahweh utters his voice before his army for his camp ex- is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of Yahweh, take note of that, is great and very awesome. Who can enjoy it? What's the context here? Judgment coming upon Israel and then the nations. I am coming with judgment and fury and you will bow. How do you know that this day of judgment is still coming? It will come to pass. That later, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Here's the sign that my judgment has not come yet. Here's the sign that the day of Lord has not arrived yet. The spirit comes. So when Acts chapter 2 takes place, what is God signifying to them? The day of the Lord has not what? Yet come. That is the context of Acts chapter 2 and Joel 2. They are saying exactly the same thing. Now, there are those who say, well, hang on. So then all of Joel chapter 2 is, has taken place in Acts uh, 2. No, no, not at all. The promise of the Spirit coming, that has taken place. But look at verse, 20, uh, verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. What is he talking about? Judgment. You will know. If the Spirit has come, know that the judgment has not come. But I will show that the judgment is coming. How? There will be visible signs in the heavens. Spirit first, then judgment. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome what? Day of Yahweh. Same thing. Same day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh will be what? That is the quote that Peter takes and says, this is how you know (coughs) that God is showing grace, that judgment has not yet come. The Spirit has come. The day of the Lord is still coming. So what does he call them to in Acts chapter 2? Repent and believe. Why? Judgment is coming. The gospel in the Old Testament is the gospel in the New Testament. There's only salvation in one person. If you call upon the name of Yahweh, you will be saved. Now, go back to Acts. Who is the Lord in this context? Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. 
In the Old Testament, that is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, will be saved, or shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible um, for him to be held by it. For David says, I saw the Lord always before me. Who's he talking about? Who's the Lord? Jesus. In other words, death could not keep him. Yes, he died, but he still lives. That's why David says, yes, he will go through the grave, but I always see the Lord before me. In other words, Jesus is the Lord. Which means to, be, to call upon the name of Jesus is to call upon the name of Yahweh. So to call upon the name of Yahweh, you will be saved, and therefore to call upon the name of Jesus, you will be what? Saved. This goes into eschatology, so I'm not going to go into that uh, very much today because we will get to that next time. At the end of Joel, it's interesting in verse 32, he says, During the days of the Spirit, there will be those who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, but only those who are called by God. If I were you, I would go back there and underline it in verse 32. Only those who are called by, it doesn't say only, but it just says um, uh, those who are called by Yahweh, those who are called by God. Why? Because that is not only uh, an independent statement. And I shouldn't say only. That is not an independent statement. Where do you hear God calling people and people being called unto salvation and then they being saved? Romans chapter 8, right? Those whom he predestined, he called. Those who are called, they're justified. Who's the he? It is God. So who saves? Does Jesus save or does God save? Who saves? The answer is both. Because Jesus is God. Yahweh. Yahweh is God. Jesus is God. And whoever calls upon the name of Jesus calls upon the name of Yahweh. That's why Peter has the right to say, if you call upon him, you will be saved. Look at the end of verse 29. Sorry, not 29, 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord, uh, sorry, of Jesus Christ. Take note of that. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, possibly speaking about the Gentiles at that stage, everyone whom the, uh, whom the Lord our God calls to himself, echoing Joel chapter 2, verse 32. All that God calls will call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord are those who are called by God. Peter's expositing Joel chapter 2. Let 
And as a result of that, many get saved. Repent and believe. Why? Because judgment is still future. Believe on him because God has provided him as your savior. When Peter quotes Joel in Acts 2, he's referring to Jesus as Lord. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the Bible refers to the same person as Yahweh. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is presented from the first sermon in the early church. Therefore, to know Jesus as Savior is to know him as Lord. How do I know that? Look at chapter 2, verse 36. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made or demonstrated him both what? Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus goes back to verse 23. Lordship and salvation is often connected in the New Testament. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. It is inseparable to his person. And this is why it becomes so important. He does not become Lord. He is Lord. When you come to him, you must accept him for who he is. If he exists as Lord, you don't have an option to submit to his lordship because he demands that you accept him as Lord. What about Old Testament saints? The objection that is raised then, well, if we have to believe in Jesus as Lord, then what did they believe in? For instance, David, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, possibly having gone through a period of sin and at that stage did not Feel the warmth of God. And so they say, restore means give me your salvation again. Or it means give me what affirms my salvation. So then if David lived in sin, and according to them, this is not me, this is them, and and at that time while he's living in sin, he didn't submit to Jesus as Lord because he's living in sin, then David's not saved. Uh, it's, it's a ridiculous argument. It is. In whom did they believe in the Old Testament? Simple question. On whom did they have to call? Yahweh, right? The same term, Yahweh, is translated Lord in the New Testament. Which means they called upon the God of the Old Testament who is the God of the New Testament. So calling upon Yahweh is calling upon Jesus, is calling upon the Lord in the New Testament. How do I know this? Look at chapter 4 of Acts, verse 12. There is one name. There is is no other name. There is just one name. Verse 12. And there there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. So that means the name in the Old Testament must be the name in the New Testament because there's no other singular name. It doesn't say, well, they called upon Yahweh in the Old Testament, so therefore if they called upon Jesus in the New Testament, then the old people, Old Testament people, could not have been saved. 
What is the name? Philippians chapter 2. You may know this, because I know I've touched on this before. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him or given uh, to him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, note that it doesn't say at the name which is Jesus. That's a completely different sentence with a completely different meaning. This genitive means the name that Jesus possesses. And it tells us what the name is. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess, what is this name? Will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the name. You call upon this name to be saved. No other name given amongst men by which you must be saved. I know that there's confusion at this stage. Isn't his name Jesus? Yes, his earthly name. He was called Jesus. Lord relates to his divinity as God. This is why Lord's salvation is so important. To deny him as Lord is to deny who he is in essence, which is God. This is why it matters. Jonah 2.9 you know, write it down. You don't have to go there. Jonah's in the belly of the fish. It's not a whale. It's a fish. <laughs> Jonah's in the belly of a very big fish. May have been a whale. I grant you that. May have been. And what does Jonah realize? Salvation is from Yahweh. Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is only found in one person. It is God. Fast forward to the New Testament. The apostles preach salvation is in Jesus. What does that mean? Salvation then is in one person who is Jesus, who is Lord, who is God. The same truth that the Old Testament realizes is that salvation can only be found in one person and it is God. Is the same truth that the New Testament apostles preach that, the, 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 that salvation is found in one person who is Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is God. And if you believe in him and call upon him, guess what? You will be saved. Two different testaments. One gospel message, call upon one God. You don't get saved differently in the Old Testament. You call upon the same God. Why is that important? Because the Old Testament points forward to the sacrifice of the one God who will die for his people. Those whom we will call are those who will call upon him. And they will call and they will be saved. The only means to be saved is to call upon him. Romans chapter 10. I think I've made the point. I'll end on this one. Romans 10, 9. Here's evidence that the name upon which you will call is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, not Jesus. That's not what it says, just Jesus. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what are you confessing? His Lordship. And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Old Testament saints look forward to the fact that he would die for their sins, be raised from the, the grave, and secure the salvation forever. New Testament saints look back at the fact that he died for our sins, secured our salvation through his death and the resurrection forever. We're looking to the same point from different vantages. Well, sometimes I say vantages. My wife always gives me a dirty eye when I say vantage. I think that point is clear, right? One name, one God. You call upon that name, you will be saved. So while Jesus is not physically present in the Old Testament, they still had to believe upon him, the promised seed, the promised Messiah, the one who is God. A denial of the lordship of Jesus is in effect questioning the deity of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I do not want to say that Jesus is not Lord. That scares me that people are comfortable with that. We cannot remove Lordship from Jesus. If he is Lord and God, then yes, he has the right to demand how you live. And I haven't dealt with that, but I will in a moment's time. So the corollary to professing faith is not only that your soul will be saved, but that you have submitted to who he is. And as a result of that, you will have a changed life. The second question is this. Is salvation about faith alone? And we started dealing with this in the Bible Hour. In many cases today, people will tell you, yes, it's faith alone, which means you only have to believe. Just make a profession. And... They will point to the fact that when you were 5 or 7 or 11 or 9 or whatever your age is as a young person, you have called upon the name of the Lord. And so daddy and mommy says, you, you know that, that last day you, you called upon Jesus, you asked, you asked him into your life, right? So then you should most act like a Christian because you are a Christian. And they keep on confirming to this young child that he's or she's a Christian. Even though their life does not demonstrate it. So then they get to their teens and the rebellion takes place naturally because of their sin nature and a little bit of their hormones. But rebellion takes place. And the parent says, do you know, you remember when you were five? When you, you made that profession? Do you remember that time? I'm just reminding you that you're actually a Christian. So live like a Christian. No. He needs to hear the gospel. She needs to be saved. I'm not saying that rebellion equals an unbeliever. If the life has not changed, then the life is not changed. Make sense? Spurgeon once said, said uh, I say this often because it's important. Don't tell me that you are a follower of Christ. Don't tell me that you're a Christian. Show me that you are a Christian. Live it out. In free grace or easy believism, they insist that it's, it's that moment. They made a profession, so they must be saved. They are eternally secure because of that moment. None lots of proponents say that repentance is a work and it is not required for salvation. So is faith alone? You do not need repentance if faith is alone. Zen Hodges says, quote, While repentance may precede salvation... 
it need not do so, end quote. What? So you do not need to, remember this morning, Metanao and, um, is it Estrefo? Turn, turn about, turn, turn around. He says, no, not essential. It, it may take place, but if it doesn't, you're fine. Don't worry about it. So you can become a believer without repentance. Grace Evangelical Society's statement of faith says this, in a quote, No act of obedience preceding or following faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I found it very interesting that they add Lord Jesus Christ when they deny lordship. Anyway, such as a commitment to obey or sorrow for sin, turning from one sin. What is that turning from one sin? Repentance. Metanoia. Baptism or submission to the lordship of Christ may be added to or considered part of faith as a condition for receiving eternal, everlasting life. End quote. There's so much of the confuse here. They're saying, well, faith is alone at the point of salvation, so you don't really need to turn from your sin. You don't need to submit to Jesus as Lord. You don't need to be baptized as an act of obedience to him. You don't need those things. All you need is faith. And even if you don't do those things, it doesn't matter. Two things. Firstly, to separate salvation from its result is antithetical to Scripture. When you get saved, what happens? It expects you to change. Secondly, yes, Jesus demands obedience. If you love me, you will what? Obey my words. It's never separate from faith. Look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Speaking about his ministry, as God has called him and given him apostleship, he says, through the Lord Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom, that is him, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Another way of saying that last clause there, obedience of faith, is faith that produces obedience. Faith that has an effect in obedience. In other words, if faith does not produce this result... We are called as apostles to preach faith so that obedience may result. But if faith does not produce obedience, this faith may not be saving faith. The same truth is found in chapter 16 of Romans. Look at verse 26. But now has been disclosed, speaking about the preaching of the gospel and the revelation that God has given to him, um, to them, I should say. Um, but now has been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings, that is the Old Testament, had been made known to all nations according to the command, the command of the eternal God to bring about the what? Obedience of faith. It's not a suggestion. When you come to faith, there is a demand of what? Obedience. God is not saying, well, if you feel like it today, you can obey me. 
If you think I am Lord today, that's okay. Just, just you know, I, I bear with you. No. He demands obedience. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him. There you go, profession. But does not keep his commandments. What is that? Obedience. Is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps as an ongoing reality his word in him, truly the love of God has been perfected. In other words, he's truly saved. Wow. I don't know what they would say when they get to this passage of scripture. Because there's a demand of obedience. Now, obedience is not required to be saved, but obedience is required if you are saved. It's that simple. What about repentance? So we know that obedience is not a work, but it's a necessary outcome of saving faith. What about repentance? Does faith need repentance? Listen to Rari in his chapter, Repent. In a book called So Great Salvation, I'm giving you the titles so that you are aware of what is in these books. He asks this question. Is repentance, quote, is repentance a condition for receiving eternal life? Yes, if it is repentance or changing one's mind about Jesus Christ, end quote. So it is only repentance if it relates to the changing of the mind. If you remember those two words, changing of the mind and so metanao, changing of the mind and way, and then estrefo, changing of the direction, the turnabout. He says, uh, only the mind. We only need to think differently about Jesus. That's all that is required in faith and repentance. He goes on to say, Quote, no, if it means that you sorrow over sin or to be sorry for sin or even to resolve to turn from sin, for these things will not save. Repentance may prepare the way for faith, but it is faith that saves, not repentance. End quote. So faith will be alone at the moment of salvation. It does not need to end in repentance. I disagree. Look at 1 Thessalonians. We looked at it this morning. I think we did. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. This idea of the non-requirement of repentance is seen in how Christians who struggle with sin are counseled. A college down the road from us counseled a young man who was struggling with immoral sin and they said, don't worry about it. You will probably die with that sin. You don't need to give it up. It's okay. It's okay. That's couching sin. That's encouraging unholiness. How can you know if that person is saved if they don't desire to change? They would say, well, look at Hebrews chapter 6. Well, those guys left the faith. Repentance is not some personal change of the perception of the mind. It may include that, but it's a change of life. It's a change of direction. You go from serving ungodly things to serving the only God. This is in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians. For they, re they themselves report concerning us 
the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned, repented, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Understand what repentance implies. There's going from one direction, from immorality and sin and idols and worshipping of the wrong thing to turning towards God. Both is required in repentance. Turning away from and turning towards. That is what is demonstrated in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. That didn't come out right. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. There was a holistic change. Change of mind and a change of direction. I I go from hating God to loving God. I go from rejecting God to pursuing God. When that doesn't take place, if you are still rejecting God, still hating the truth, you are not saved. Then repentance has not taken place. It's also interesting that in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, faith and repentance appear together. God commands people to repent in saving faith. Chapter 20, verse 21. Repent and believe. Repentance and faith. We mentioned this morning that God grants repentance. Let me ask you this question. If God grants repentance... Like he grants faith. Do you think he requires it? Absolutely. If he gives it to you, you are going to do it. He grants faith so that you may believe. He grants repentance so that you may turn. Without him doing it, you are not turning. Another problem that this creates is the denial of the promise of the new covenant. Remember Ezekiel chapter 36? I'm not going to read it. I was going to read it. We don't have time. Ezekiel 36 promises that there would be a new heart. Why do you need a new heart? Because the heart of someone rejects God. It doesn't want to turn. A new heart, which means it's a new desire, a new will. And what is the net result? God says that I will cause you to obey my word. You will go from hating me to turning towards me and walking in accordance with my will. What is that? That's repentance. That is God changing a life that doesn't want to be changed. We're so scared of losing our free will in the process of salvation that we fight against God's freedom to sovereignly choose and call people to salvation. People hate the idea of losing free will. Your free will does not matter to God. You can will all you want. And you will not change your life. You can want all you will. You will not come to him. Unless he grants you the ability to be saved. Okay, lastly. I know it's half past. Give me two minutes. Can a believer cease to persevere and remain saved? Listen to this letter written to John Piper. Quote, near the age of 15. Okay, when I say two minutes, my wife knows I don't mean two minutes. So... Near the age of 15, I accepted Christ as my Savior. As I look back on my life, I can see he had powerful influence during my late teen years. That word influence is important because that's what they believe God does. He provides the capacity, but he doesn't provide the change. So he influences your life in my late teen years and early 20s. In my late 20s, I began to be aware of the concept of Christ as Lord. 
as I investigated the concept, I struggled with it. I realized that for Christ to be Lord, I had to submit everything to him. Yes, amen. <laughs> In my early 30s, I did just that. No. You didn't submit in your 30s and rebelled in your 20s. You were probably saved in your 30s. This is the problem. The concept of Lords of Salvation that you support would mean that had I died in my 20s, that is, before Christ was Lord, I would not have gone to heaven. End quote. That is the reality, and that is exactly the truth. If Christ is not Lord of your life, guess what? You're going lost. It's that simple. If Christ is not Lord, you don't have salvation because he has not saved and changed you. This is why it's a distinctive that matters to us. Yet, this is so common today. Can you be saved and not change? There are deviant views that comes up in this belief. For instance, the four soils, it's supposedly descriptive of four Christians. So then there are those who don't change at all. There's no response to the truth, but they are saved. There are those who have a short period response to the truth, but they fall away and they are not saved. Sorry, they are still saved. And there are those who, who are saved and they produce much fruit. So they don't see that as different types of people, they see it as Christians who just respond differently to obedience. They also say that in Hebrews, it's a, it's a sign, chapter 6, it's a sign of a Christian who has wandered away from the truth and rejected Christ and went back to Judaism. No, it's a Christian. They'll be saved at the end. This kind of language and perspective shows how much Easy believism and anti-lordship salvation has influenced our thinking because you will find it a lot now in books. Charles Ryrie, he's okay. I mean, his theology book is okay. But he says, you can be a true believer even if eventually you cease to believe. Explain that to me. How on earth can you not believe and still have Jesus as Savior? The two work against each other. The very premise upon which we are saved is our faith in Him. Which means you are believing in Him. Which means if you don't believe in Him, there is no faith in Him. Wow. Perseverance is a result of salvation. And they confuse it with a, necess a necessity for salvation. I don't believe that you need to have perseverance to be saved. I don't think anybody actually says that, but it seems like they are fighting against that. You call that a straw man argument. Perseverance naturally results in salvation. Remember James chapter 1, count it all joy? What is the net result of that? Endurance. Ongoing faith. Ongoing endurance. Chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man that, what? Endures a trial. For when he has been tested or proved, he will receive, what? The crown which is life is the genitive. The crown of life from the righteous judge. In other words, you will not go lost. 
because he's proved himself to be faithful. It's not the proving that causes you to be saved. It is salvation that demonstrates itself in perseverance that shows you are saved. Salvation that results in perseverance demonstrates that you are saved. I'm going to have to end on that. We have a lot more to say, to say but look at 1 Peter 1.5. 1 Peter 1.5, I'll end on this. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. You call that regeneration, the single moment where God executes divine sovereign will in causing life in an ungodly, undeserving sinner. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being kept, guarded, persevered through, um, preserved, I should say, through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God keeps those who comes to him by faith, through faith, and in faith. It is God who keeps his people. Perseverance of the saints is not us keeping ourselves. If that is the case, we will all go lost. Perseverance of the faith is a sign of God keeping us in the midst of affliction. By the power of God, we are kept and we are saved. Salvation is a sovereign work of God. Lordship salvation declares that reality. It is God who saves. It is God who keeps. And it is God who sanctifies. There is nothing in it that we add to it. That is what we believe. Anti-Lords of Salvation says you don't need anything else. You only need to believe. That is not the gospel that Jesus preached. Let me end. Father, you are good and kind and gracious. We know that you have been merciful in so many ways to so many of us for so many years. We pray for grace, Lord. There are those who are unsaved. They are in that period of conversion where you are calling and drawing them. The exposure to the truth is working on their hearts and you are, in some cases, about to bring that conviction that they need Christ as Savior and Lord. We pray that you would do that. There are those who are living in immorality and sin who pursue it as a life habit with no conviction. We pray that you would save them. There are those who are struggling with sin and who are not sure of their salvation. If they are yours, bring about assurance, Lord. There are those, Lord, who have been faithful in so many areas of their service and life in this church, but have not repented of their sin. We pray that you would grant repentance. Lord, we need to submit to your Lordship. We need to commit our lives to you and devote to you everything that we are, all that we have, instead of just saying that we believe. Grant grace and save for your glory, we pray. Amen.